Okay, today we are uh, in Romans chapter 4, and kind of in the middle of the chapter. And uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 13. And uh, my goal is only five verses. <laughs> 13 through 17. So uh, we'll see if we can manage to accomplish that. Last week, we did, uh, we picked it up at verse 6 and went down through verse 12. Uh, and so, uh, by way of review, let's go back and kind of think back what are some of the things that you recall that we talked about last week in that passage, verses 6 through 12. Okay. Okay. What else? Okay. Okay. Good. <clears throat> and speaking of Abraham and David, they really present to us opposite sides of the same coin, right? So we're talking about justification. Uh, we're talking about the promise of God and the blessing of God. In what ways do Abraham and David represent opposite sides of this thing that, that, that Paul is talking about? Yes, Sarah. Abraham's faith was credited to Okay. Okay, good. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. But the flip side of that, and, and, and Paul goes over and he uses David, and he says, okay, now, David illustrates this same thing that we're talking about with Abraham, but with David, actually, it's kind of the opposite side of the story. It's the other side of the story. That, that with Abraham, something was credited to him. With David, it was something that was not credited to him. To, to, uh, to Abraham, his faith was credited as righteousness. And with David, his sin was not credited to him. We had an illustration that we used. Remember what our illustration was? Okay, the bank. And what about the bank? We've all gotten this call from the bank, right? <laughs> okay, so we get this call from the bank and the bank calls and they tell us that tell us actually two things. One, they tell us that they're going to credit our account with a million dollars. Okay, we were our, our account is zilch, zero. Okay, we're all familiar with that, right? Okay, so our account is zero, but the bank calls us, the banker, our banker says to us, well, we really like you. You're really a nice customer. And so we're going to we're going to credit your account with a million dollars. Well, that helps. Except that you've written a million and a half dollars of rubber checks. 
Okay, so you have all these outstanding checks that you cannot cover. So even with the million dollars, you can't cover it. So the banker says, well, we're also not going to credit your account with those overdrawn checks. Okay, so that's what we've got going on here. We have we have Abraham is credited with righteousness and David's sins are not credited against him. And that presents for gives us kind of the totality of the picture the whole picture of what's going on here and it's all done by faith. And none of it has to do with, uh, with works. What else? So just a, a little more on that point. I think when well, I've read that over the years uh, verse 6 in particular at the end where he says uh, David speaks about God reckoning righteous apart from works. So I expected, when, especially when I was first reading this, that I would go to Psalm 32 yeah. and see something about works uh-huh. or not works. Uh-huh. Or, so it's, it's kind of confusing for a long time, wondering why. I'm trying to, pick, trying to track the call. How is he presenting this as not works okay. whenever there's nothing about works in the psalm? Okay, okay. Well, actually, there is something about works in the psalm. What is it? Well, at the end of the psalm, is God leading him in, uh, in wisdom. Okay, but in the verses he cites, there's something about works. Okay, well, what are the works that he has? Pardon? Uh, lawless. lawless works, yeah. Sinful works, okay? So, so, Paul is really going to the extreme. So, it's not just... It's not just that I've not done anything good and, and righteousness is accredited to, to, to me, but that I've actually done evil things. And so, so Paul's kind of going to the extreme to show it's not of works because even when you have somebody who's doing the opposite of good works, his righteousness, he, he still has righteousness credited to him by faith. So, so I think that would be the answer to your question. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? We talked some about circumcision last week. What, what did we learn about circumcision? That it was a claim of his righteousness, not the thing that gave him righteousness. Okay, right. And how do we know that? How do we know that circumcision was a sign, he says, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, and it is not a, his, his circumcision was not the was not the the work itself or the righteousness. So how do we know that? Exactly. He was declared righteous at that point in Genesis chapter 15 where he believed the promise of God, but he is not circumcised. In fact, the circumcision is not even given as a sign until Genesis chapter 17, which is approximately 16 or 17 years after he was declared righteous. So we find out that circumcision as a good work is a seal, is a sign of the righteousness that he has by faith. So it is with our good works. Our good works are not our righteousness. They are rather a sign or a seal or an evidence of our righteousness. Now we talked about the fact that there are some similarities between circumcision and baptism. And we talked about the fact that when somebody gets saved, 
we usually encourage them to get baptized right away, right? Like, you know, pretty quick we want to see them get baptized. So why is it that God waited 17 years to tell Abraham to be circumcised after he declared him righteous? Why didn't he just, as soon as he declared him righteous, say, now Abraham, we need a sign or a seal of this so everybody will know that you're righteous by faith, so, so let's go out and, and let's uh, do this circumcision thing. But he doesn't do that. He waits 17 years. Why did he do that? Okay, he wanted to be very clear Certainly in Abraham's mind, but also in our minds as we look back on it. He wants it to be very clear that, that circumcision is simply a sign or a seal of a righteousness that occurred previous to that. And that's the same thing with baptism. Now, we have reasons for doing baptism uh, quite quickly after a person is converted. But we need to keep in mind that same distinction that baptism is simply a sign or a seal of the righteousness that we have by faith. Okay? Anything else from that passage that you want to bring up? Well, there's a a related issue. I I don't think we'll want to talk about it right now, but there are some groups that practice infant baptism, Mm -hmm. and they part of their teaching says that that. Just like circumcision is a sign, mm-hmm. infant baptism is a sign that mm-hmm. replaces that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if they're using this passage or not. I kind of think not. But uh, you know, I studied that quite a bit about a year ago, and I don't yeah. remember whether they use this passage or not. So, okay. yeah. But you're right. We don't want to take time on that. But that is a, that's a good question. That's a good issue. But since we're not teaching baptism right now, I'll dodge the issue. <laughs> just the point I was going to make then is that just like we're talking about circumcision here, if anything, as a sign, well, maybe that's okay or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. It doesn't do anything other than a sign. Yes, yes. Okay, now uh, let me point out some things as we go on here about what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 4. Uh, he, uses, uh, he uses several words interchangeably. And, and it will help us if we... Now these words really do refer to different things, so they're not strictly synonymous, but they're kind of all thrown in a basket together and they all kind of come as a package deal. Okay, So in the first part of chapter 4... When he was talking about works, he talked about verse two. He says, "For Abraham was justified by if Abraham was justified by works." And then he goes on and explains that no, he wasn't justified by works. He was justified by faith. And so, one of the ideas that Paul is talking about here in chapter four is the idea of justification. Okay, Uh, but then as we go on down into verse six, we pick up this idea of blessing. So he starts talking about the blessing that David talks about. Okay. So, so, so Paul has kind of slid from talking about justification into talking about blessing. Now, they're really two different things, okay? But they're all part of the same package deal. They all come from faith, okay? And then as we get down into the verses that we're going to look at today and next week, he starts talking about the promise, okay? So these are words that Paul is kind of throwing around interchangeably. And like I say, they're not really synonymous, but it's all part of the package deal of what comes by faith and not by works. Okay? So we're dealing with justification. We're dealing with the blessing. We're dealing with the promise. And, and, I, and I, as I teach and talk about them, I tend to kind of throw those words out 
kind of the way Paul does, just kind of interchangeably. And, and I just wanted to point that out to you. Now, I want you to notice something else that Paul is doing. He's kind of going through a progression of things which justification or the promise or the blessing comes apart from. Okay. So, in verses, uh, for example, verses 3 through 8, Paul is talking about faith apart from works. Okay. And so, he's talking kind of in a general sense of good works and that faith comes apart from good works. And he talks about how Abraham was not uh, justified by his works, but he was justified by faith. So, he talks about faith apart from works in verses 3 through 8. But in verses 9 through 12, some of the verses we looked at last week, he talks about circumcision. And he talks about faith apart from circumcision. And he shows how Abraham believed God before he was circumcised. And so he was declared righteous by faith apart from circumcision. So in the first part of the chapter, it's apart from works. In the second, the general concept of works. In the second part of the chapter, it's uh, apart from circumcision. In the passage we're going to look at today, he's going to talk about faith apart from the law. Okay, specifically here he's talking about the Mosaic law. And then next week we're going to find out that not only does this righteousness come by faith apart from works and by faith apart from circumcision and by faith apart from the law, but we're going to find out it even comes by faith apart from sight. Okay? And so these are kind of the four things that Paul emphasizes here as we're going through Romans. And that's just, I just kind of throw that out to give you, to kind of help you get your bearings in the chapter. Okay? Well, let's pick it up then in verse 13 and read down through verse 17. And, uh, and let's see what the Lord has to say to us here. He says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no violation. Or you could put the word transgression in there. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, just as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist." Okay, well, some of this may seem to be initially a little abstract and a little kind of uh, hard to grasp, but actually, uh, actually, it's, there's really some pretty exciting concepts in here that I hope we can see as we as we unfold the passage. First of all, you'll notice that in verse 13 now, he, as I mentioned, he'd been talking about justification. He'd been talking about blessing. Now he's talking about the promise. Okay. He's talking about this promise to Abraham and the promise that was given to Abraham and he says here also to his descendants. This promise is what Abraham believed that God then credited to him as righteousness. And so he's talking about the the promise that God gave him in chapter 15 
And then the promise was expanded on in chapter 17, 17 years later, when God uh, instituted the, uh, the rite of circumcision. But this promise becomes now the subject of the next few verses. So we need to understand what is this promise that he's talking about. Okay? So what does he say is the promise there in verse 13? To be the heir of the world and a promise that he would inherit the world. Okay? And the promise, he says, is to Abraham or to his descendants. Okay? So the idea is if, uh, if I inherited something from my father, if I inherited some great wealth from my father, that's all great and good. I've inherited it. But when I die, where does it go? I pass it on, right? To my children. So, because I am the heir of those things, those who are my descendants also become the heirs. So, that's the sense that he's using it here. It was originally given to Abraham. He was the, he was the inheritor of this promise. But, but it passes on from Abraham to all of those who are Abraham's descendants. And that becomes the issue of the passage. Who are Abraham's descendants? Who are the ones then who are the inheritors of this promise? Okay, so so Abraham now has been given some promise, and the promise is what? What did he inherit? What did Abraham inherit? The world. Okay. Now let me ask you this question: Where in all of God's promises to Abraham? Did God promise him the world? He's shaking his head back there. <laughs> Pardon? Okay. And that's a good point. Well, he talks about promising him the land of Canaan, right? He has him walk all around the land, you know, north and south and east and west, and everywhere your foot trips. And so he promises him the land of Canaan, and he promises him descendants. You know, he promises him Isaac and descendants. But, okay. Maybe is when he promised that all the world would be blessed. Okay. Okay. He would be the blessing bearer. Okay. Okay. Well, that's close. That's close. And tied in with that was the promise that, that, in, that Abraham would be the father of what? Many nations. Is that a reference to his physical descendants? How many nations do, do the descendants of Israel make up? One. Just one. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. So he had he had these other descendants, right? Yes. Uh, but most commentators understand that the promise of many nations is the promise that that. Paul is explicating for us here, that Paul is explaining to us here. Those who are his descendants by faith. Remember, we discovered last week that everyone who believes like Abraham believed, everyone who has faith like Abraham believed, Abraham is their father. Remember, we talked about that last week. Okay, So, so he becomes the father of many nations in the sense that he is the father of all those who believe. So something we discover then, if we have this promise to Abraham 
of these many nations, that's probably what Paul has in mind here when he talks about the promise to Abraham that he would be the heir of the world or the inheritor of the world. That is, that all these nations, there would be all these nations of men and women and little children who have the same faith that Abraham has. And so what we discover is that when Jesus was standing on the mountain in Matthew chapter 28 and giving the great commission to his disciples, that great commission was rooted in the promise to Abraham. As he says there in Matthew 28, he says, I want you to go and I says, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. And what Jesus has in mind is it's the responsibility of the church, of the body of Christ, to play a role in fulfilling this promise that God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago. That we would play a part in seeing men and women become the descendants of Abraham by faith. Okay? So, so, clearly, Paul is associating in this passage the idea of being a descendant of Abraham as being one who is a person with faith like Abraham's. Okay? So, the promise then is that they would inherit the world. Now, but the promise isn't just to Abraham. The promise is to all the descendants, right? We're all heirs of this great promise that was given to Abraham. Well, let me ask you. I'm, you know, I think probably most of you in here are of the same faith as Abraham, and I'm of the same faith as Abraham. Let me ask you a question. Do we own the world? Sure doesn't look like it, does it? This world's a mess. This world's a mess and it isn't going the way you want it to go or the way I want it to go, right? And it doesn't matter doesn't matter the outcome of the election next, you know, in a couple of weeks, does it? Because as near as I can tell, neither one of those guys are of the faith of Abraham, right? Okay, I mean that doesn't mean I don't have a very strong preference and I'm gonna vote that preference in a couple of weeks, okay? But it's pretty clear to me neither one of those guys, as far as I can tell, is is an heir of is an heir of the promise given to Abraham, those are the guys that are going to be running the world. Okay? This world is run and owned and possessed and, and, and runs by the values of people who do not share the values of Abraham. Right? So, right now, the world is not ours. But I have a promise. I have a promise from God that because I have the same faith that Abraham has, that there is going to come a time when the world will be mine and yours. And it's going to be full of righteous people and the world is always going to do what is righteous. He speaks in one place of the world in which righteousness dwells and that's going to be the world that we inherit. That's a great promise. That is a great promise, folks. So, so I, you know, I have some hopes for what happens a couple of weeks from now in the upcoming election. I have some hopes, you know, but I don't have a lot of hope. My hope is fixed on something else. My hope is fixed on a promise given to Abraham 4,000 years ago. That's what my hope was. 
And that ultimately, eventually, God is going to give to Abraham and to all of Abraham's descendants, as, as Paul defines his descendants in this passage, he's going to give to them the world. That's going to be a great day. That's going to be a great day. Okay. Well, so that's the promise. Now, the question is, to whom is the promise given? Abraham or his descendants, okay? To Abraham and his descendants. I mean, you're right. Your answer was right, but, but you're getting ahead of me there, okay? So, uh, so the promise is given to Abraham and his descendants, and it is based upon what? The righteousness of faith. But before he tells us it's based on the righteousness of faith, he tells us what it is not based upon, right? Which is what? The law, okay? Now, he introduces the concept here of the law. Now, this, this passage here is one of the exceptions that proves the rule. You remember I taught uh, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the use of the, of the concept law in Romans and how Paul uses it in a number of different ways. And that generally speaking, when you see the definite article, uh, as a general rule, when you see the definite article, the, before the word law in Romans, it's a reference to the Mosaic law. And when you see it without the definite article, it's generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking is the, uh, the idea of law in general, okay, rather than the Mosaic law. Uh, now, in most of your translations here, you'll probably see that in most cases here, they put the definite article. But that's the translator's decision. Actually, in the Greek, there is no definite article there. But the translators have added the definite article before the word law, because it's pretty clear that that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the Mosaic Law. So although Paul did not put the definite article in, uh, it helps us to see it in there so we'll think and remember that what Paul has in mind here is the Mosaic Law. And his argument is that, that Abraham, the promise was made to Abraham not based upon the law or Abraham's keeping of the law, but by faith. Now, how do we know with Abraham that the promise was given to him not on the basis of the law, the Mosaic law? He didn't have the Mosaic law. So, in spite of what many Jewish uh, uh, scholars of Paul's day thought was that Abraham kept the law perfectly before the law was given... Paul's point, and he makes this point very pointedly in the book of Galatians in chapter 3. He makes this point that Abraham was declared righteous by faith 430 years before the law was given. So it's kind of the same thing as we had with circumcision. That it was very clear that there was a 17-year separation between uh, Abraham being declared righteous by faith and, and his receiving of circumcision, there was a 17-year gap. So it makes it very clear that for those 17 years he was righteous without being circumcised. Now we see the same principle applies with the law. The law comes, Paul says in Galatians, 430 years later. Okay? But, but Abraham, was, Abraham was justified or received the blessing or inherited the promise, however you want to describe it, many, many, many years earlier. 430 years earlier. Okay. So, we know that Abraham 
became righteous by faith without the law. Now, the question comes up. Well, what if when the law came, God changed everything? Okay, that's all fine and good for Abraham. But now the law comes at Sinai to Israel. And now God expects us to keep the law in order to obtain the inheritance. What is Paul's answer to that? Those errors through the law are valid in faith. The promise is nullified. Verse 14. Okay. Faith is made void and the promise is nullified. So it works this way. I come up to David here and I say, David, I really like you. Not because you're very good at all. I just like you just because I like you. It's all in me. It's not in you. Okay. I like you. And so, so in a couple of weeks, I'm going to bring you a homemade cherry pie. Okay? That's my promise. And so, David's sitting there at home, and every meal he sits down to eat, and he just keeps drooling over thinking about this promise that he's got. And he's counting on that cherry pie. And one week passes, and then two weeks passes, and then three weeks passes, and then four weeks passes, and he's not got his cherry pie. So he sees me here in Sunday school, and he says to me, uh, Rick, you promised me a cherry pie. Where's my cherry pie? And I said, well, David, you haven't mowed my lawn yet. <laughs> what happened to the promise? What happened to the promise? It's nullified, isn't it? What happened to David's faith in me? It's made void, isn't it? It's made useless. If, in fact, the law which came 430 years later is the basis by which we are justified, the basis by which we receive the blessing of the forgiveness of sins, if it is the basis by which we receive the inheritance of the world, if the law is the basis, then your faith is worthless. And there is no promise. It's nullified. And the promise that God made to Abraham is nothing. It's not worth the paper it's written on. And so what we're discovering here is Paul is presenting to us two categories. And we have to be very careful to keep these two categories distinct. There is the category of grace and there's the category of the law. Okay? So as you look down through these verses, look down through them and tell me, we have grace and we have law. And what are the words that are associated in this passage that we come across that are associated with the category of grace? A promise. Okay. Okay. And faith. And what else? Okay, a guarantee. No violation of the law. 
Okay, we'll deal with that later. <laughs> okay, what else? About inheritance. Right? The inheritance which which is associated with grace. Now, when we have the law in the category of the law, what are the words that we come across that are associated with the law? Okay, wrath. Okay, anything else? Violation. Violation or transgression. Yes. Once I get done writing this one, did I add too many letters in there? Uh, what was yours? Work. 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 Okay. Works. Okay. Okay. No inheritance. Okay. They're two different categories, folks. And if you mix these categories together, you got a mess. Uh, my wife is not like most women. That's why I married her. No, no, don't take that too seriously. My wife's not like most women. She loves to have, when she's cooking, she loves to have a bunch of people in the kitchen with her. Okay? She just... So, Thanksgiving at our house is kind of chaotic because I even get pulled into the kitchen. Uh, and I am not a cook. You know, I do fried eggs, you know, a couple times a week and oatmeal occasionally, you know, and toast every day, you know, that type of thing. But but I'm not a cook and I pretty much stay out of the kitchen and I leave that uh, to the other people of the family, okay? But on Thanksgiving, I get pulled in because I'm the turkey expert. Now, don't ask me how I became a turkey expert, but let me just tell you one thing. Cooking a turkey is pretty easy work, actually. So that's how I got that job, you know. It was the one you could give to him and he couldn't screw it up, okay? So, so I'm the turkey expert. So on Thanksgiving, I do the turkey, right? But, but there's a bunch of other family members in there who are cooking other things. Now, I've been cooking the turkey at our family for Thanksgiving, most Thanksgivings. Now, for, you know, going on 35 or 40 years or so, okay? So, you think I have it down, but I still use the cookbook, right? I mean, still use the recipe. I don't consult it a lot. I know most. But I still kind of check to make sure I'm doing things right, even though it's pretty simple, okay? But there's other people in there, and they're cooking things that are more difficult, and so they have to have the cookbook. So if you can imagine, we have the cookbook laid open there, and I've got it open to the turkey, and somebody else is looking at the, you know, the Waldorf salad or the breads or the pies or whatever. Now, just imagine what happens if you've got somebody in the kitchen and they're cooking, and they're, and they're cooking up a, uh, they're cooking up a, uh, some cherry pie. Let's go with the cherry pie. Okay, so we're going to have cherry, the pumpkin pie. It's Thanksgiving. Okay, so, so they're making a pumpkin pie. And we've got somebody else, and, uh, and, and they're making the homemade bread. Okay? And so what happens is, because people are flipping the cookbook back and forth, is that the person cooking the pumpkin pie comes and looks in the cookbook and doesn't realize that really what they're looking at is the bread recipe. So they start following the bread recipe instructions, right? And so their product, whatever it is, ends up to be a conglomeration of pumpkin pie and dilly bread. Okay. What do you got? Huh? <laughs> I'm not even going there. <laughs> you got a mess, right? Why? 
because you confuse the categories. Now that's what happens when we mix these two together. We confuse categories. Now the law is great for what the law is intended for. Just like pumpkin pie is great for what it's intended for. But I tell you what, it's a disaster if you mix a little bread in with it. Right? I mean, if you can leave your pumpkin pie out there all day long. It's not going to rise. You know, it's just, you know, you got to keep them separate. But the problem is, we don't want to keep them separate. We want to mix them together. And that's exactly the problem Paul was having with the Galatians. He says, here you were saved. Initially, you were saved by the Spirit. You were saved by grace. And he says, now you think you're going on and you're, and, and, and you're being sanctified and justified by works? He says, so what's, what's, what's wrong with you people? You're confusing your categories. They're two different things. So the law is great for what it's intended for, but you need to realize that grace brings an inheritance and the law brings wrath. They're two different things. And if you want the inheritance, you've got to stay in this category. You've got to stay in the category of grace. And so we have all kinds of people who, you know, when you read the Bible, it's pretty hard to get away from the idea of faith, right? It's all the way through the Bible. So it's pretty hard for somebody to argue that faith isn't important. So most false teachers, and even some well-meaning Christians, they're not going to ignore the idea of faith. They just say, well, yeah, you've got to have faith, but you also got to have some works, right? And as soon as they do that, what have they done? They're mixing their categories, aren't they? They're mixing their categories. And Paul says that to Abraham, to Abraham, this blessing came, this inheritance came, not by law, but by grace or by faith. And then he explains to us why. Why is it that it cannot come by law, and then he explains to us why it is that it does come by faith. So, in verse, uh, the first why in verse uh, 14 is what we've already talked about. If he's, Abraham started out and he was justified by faith, right? And then 430 years later, the law comes, and if suddenly, suddenly we're justified by the law or we receive the inheritance by the law, then, then all Abraham's faith and the promise, all that stuff is just nonsense. That's just words on a page. That's all that is. It doesn't mean diddly squat. It just erased 430 years of redemptive history. Okay? <clears throat> but then he goes on in verse uh, 15, and he says, For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there transgression or violation. What is he saying? Well, <clears throat> the idea there, the word that the New American translates violation is really uh, the word transgression. And it, 
really is a different word than the word sin. It has a different sense to it. Sin is this kind of pervasive thing within us. Okay. And, and we, as Paul made it very clear early in Romans, we all sin. All sin falls short of the glory of God. And it doesn't matter whether we have the law or we don't have the law. We've all sinned. So what does he mean then when he says, where there is no law, neither is there violation or transgression? What he means simply is that the idea of transgression, it goes a little further than the idea of sin. The idea of transgression is, uh, is what happens when you guys that are hunters, one of them just walking out the door because he didn't want to hear this. <laughs> one of us that are hunters, or those of us that are hunters, you go out hunting and you're looking for a good place to hunt and you see that great plot of ground over there, that great acreage over there to hunt, but there's a barbed wire fence and hanging on that fence is a sign that says, no trespassing. Okay. Now, it's very explicit. The owner doesn't want you on his property hunting. Right? So he puts a sign out there. And as soon as you cross over that barbed wire fence, you have consciously, willfully violated the stipulations that he set for that you're not to be on his property hunting. Right? Or to be on his property at all. No trespassing. Okay? Now that's the idea of trespassing. Trespassing entails the idea of a willful violation of an explicitly understood command. Now it's true that we all sin and many times we sin presumptuously. We don't even know when we're sinning. We just live in this state of rebellion against God. But when the law came... God set for not just kind of this vague conscience that we have, but very explicit directions as to what righteousness looked like and what he wanted, how he wanted the Jews to live. And so he set forth these very explicit written no trespassing signs, right? And so trespassing is, is, is something much more, much more explicit much more overt than sin in general. It's a willful, conscious violation of a known rule or a known law. Okay? And so what Paul is saying simply here is that when, when the law brings wrath, now clearly we already saw in Romans that everybody's under the wrath of God. So he's not, he's not talking in that sense here. But he's talking here about an elevated level of wrath, if we could say it that way. That with the law, the law brings in greater wrath because the law makes it more explicit what's wrong and what's right. And we willfully, stubbornly choose to go contrary to what we know God says is wrong. You ever done that? You ever just gone... Well, yeah, I know God says this, but I'm going to do this. Kind of sounds pretty bad when we put it that way, doesn't it? But, that, but we do it, and that's transgression. And so what came with the law is greater transgression. It wasn't just this general nebulous sin thing, but it was very specific, overt rebellion against God. And so with it comes greater wrath. And so that's simply what he means when he says... Where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
to have transgression, you got to have a law. To have transgression, you got to have no trespassing sign, right? If the no trespassing sign isn't there, you know, you can climb over that fence and go, well, you know, he didn't say, you know, so you're kind of, you know, you may have a hunch that he doesn't like the idea because last time you were on his property, he ran you off. But if he hasn't put a no trespassing sign up, you know, it's, you can justify it, maybe. As soon as he puts that sign up and you do it, that's a very willful, conscious act. You can be prosecuted for that. So with the law comes wrath. An even greater wrath than we were otherwise under. So now the Jews have a predicament, don't they? Because now they've got the law and they've got to deal with all of this. So there's some advantages to having the law. There's also some disadvantages. To whom much is given, much is also required. And so they've got this to deal with. So, so now we know if we're going to go the route, the law route, we're not going to get over here because this is a different category, right? That's what Paul's saying. Can't go the law route because the law brings transgression, it brings wrath, it brings you know, it brings no inheritance. You know, it just doesn't get you here. If you want to get here, you've got to go the other route. And that's what he starts talking about then in verses uh, 16 and 17. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it might be by grace. So if you want to get into this category, how do you get into this category? By faith. That's how you get over here. So, so by faith, Faith, then, we enter into this new category of grace, which entails the promise and faith and the guarantee and the inheritance and all those goodies. All the stuff we want. Okay? It's by faith, in order that it might be by grace, in order that the promise might be guaranteed to all the descendants. Not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Now, he's not saying, and we know he's not saying, that you can go either way. You can either go by the route of law or you can go by the route of faith. When he, when he says that in, in uh, verse 16, when he says, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He's not presenting two alternate routes and you can get there either way. Because we already saw back in, chap- in verses 11 and 12 of the chapter when he was talking about circumcision that what he really means here in verse 16 is that those who are, who are of the law, who are keeping the law, who have the obligation of the law, he's talking about the Jews, who are also of faith. Because that's what he said in verses 11 and 12. Okay, So... So you can you can do the law thing if you want. But if you want the inheritance, you've got to also do the faith thing. And you can do the faith thing and not do the law thing and still get the inheritance. Okay. So this is the determining factor here. So there are those who follow the law, who keep the law. That's okay. As long as they have faith. Right? That's what Paul's saying. But if you're counting on this to get you over here, you got a problem. Because it won't get you there. The only way to get here is by faith. So, so he says, 
that the promise might be guaranteed to all those who are the descendants of Abraham by faith. And there at the end of, towards the end or middle of verse 16, he says, to those who are of the, uh, no, the end of 16, he says, but uh, also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So these people are, Abraham is their father because they are of the faith of Abraham. And then he says, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. See, this is how we know that that promise that God made to Abraham, that he had been made the father of many nations, was a reference to his spiritual descendants, because that's what Paul says right here. He is the father of us all, even as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now, that's a... And in your translation, it may actually show this. That's a parenthetical. Okay? And that's important because when we get to the next clause in the, in the verse, it doesn't make sense if you tie it to the parenthetical. You've got to tie it to what comes before the parenthetical. So notice that, that in verse 17, if your translation doesn't show it, the, the uh, first part of the verse, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, is all parenthetical. Okay? But the point is that Abraham is the father of all those who believe. So just like we said last week, Paul uses Abraham as his example because Abraham is the typical Jew. And that's why he has to use Abraham as the example of one who is saved by faith. Because he's, he's the archetypical Jew. Or archetypical Jew. Okay. Now, we also learned last week that Abraham is, by his faith, the archetypical believer. As Abraham is the father of the Jews, he is also the father of all believers. Okay? Now, how does that happen? I don't have any connection with Abraham. Do you? I mean, I, I don't know if any of you in, in the room here are Jews, but I don't have any connection with Abraham. Zero. Zilch. None of Abraham's blood in my, in my veins. Probably not in yours either. So how is it that you are a descendant of Abraham? Well, that's what he explains in the final verse there, in verse 17. After his parenthetical phrase, he says, in the presence of him in whom he believed. Now, to what does that refer? That's referring, uh, that's referring back uh, to those who are Abraham's descendants. In other words, he's saying, he's saying uh, in, in uh, the end of 16 there, he says all those, uh, uh, all those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all in the presence of. So if you skip the parentheses, read it like this, from verse 16 into verse 17, but also to those who are the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all in the presence of him whom he believed. In other words, in God's mind, in God's eyes, Abraham is my father. In the presence of him in whom Abraham believes, I am also a descendant of Abraham. How am I a descendant of Abraham? Because I'm of the same faith that Abraham has. So even though I have none of Abraham's blood in my veins, I'm actually... <coughs> a co-heir with Abraham of the promise of the world. Now, how does that work? How can that happen? Because I'm, 
I'm, I'm just a pagan old sinner with no connection to Abraham and a life racked with sin, dead in my sins, and totally unrelated to Abraham. How is it that in the presence of God, the one in whom Abraham believed, I am a child of Abraham and you too? How does that happen? Well, he makes it clear to us, doesn't he? He says in verse 17, he says, Even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, I think Abraham, uh, Paul here, Paul has something very clear in mind. When he starts talking about giving life to the dead, what do you think he's thinking about? And I'll give you a hint. If you've read the whole chapter, whole chapter here, there's a clue. But it's we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Sarah's womb, which Paul describes as what? Dead. And Abraham, who is what? As good as dead. So here we have Abraham. He gets this promise from God. And, and, and it says here in chapter 4 later, we'll get to these verses later, that Abraham contemplated, Abraham who himself was as good as dead, contemplated or thought about and reflected on the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now, you don't get a much deader womb than one that's been dead for 90 years. This woman has lived 90 years and she's never had a child. Her womb is dead. Dead, 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 dead. And God came to Abraham and said, you're going to have descendants. And Abraham believed God because he believed that God was the one who gives life to the dead. And I was dead. And you were dead. So how is it that I can be an heir of the promise of God? Because the God that Abraham believed in is the God who gives life to the dead. And I have no connection with Abraham. As far as Abraham's concerned, I don't exist. But God is the God who creates ex nihilo. Important concept. Two Greek words. Ex nihilo. The Greek word ex means out of. And nihilo means nothing. And before... God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing. Okay? Nothing. Now, as one great philosopher said, nothing is what a rock thinks about. Okay? Nothing is nothing, folks. So you have all these sophisticated scientists and now they've got their Big Bang Theory, right? And they say, okay, we trace it back and we trace it back and we trace it back and we get back to this little, tiny, little speck of energy at the very beginning. But energy is what? 
something. Where did that little speck of energy? See, that doesn't explain creation apart from God because energy is something. And everything that's something has to have a cause. But God created ex nihilo. So at creation, before there was anything, there wasn't a speck of anything. There wasn't a speck of dust. There wasn't a speck of energy. There wasn't a speck of light. There wasn't a second of time because time is created. There was nothing. And God, who is independent and apart from all those things I just described, spoke. And there it was. Just like that. Ex nihilo. Now, if he can do that, can he make you a son of Abraham? Or a daughter of Abraham. He can, can't he? So it's no problem for God. So now I was dead in my sins. I have no connection to Abraham. But there was a point in time in my life when I believed the promise of God. And there was, hopefully, in your life, a point in time where you believed the promise of God. And at that point in time where you believe the promise of God, God gave life to the dead and called into being that which did not exist. And in the presence of him in whom Abraham believed, you became a child of Abraham and an heir of the promise of the world. Okay? Next week we'll go on.